you know, the way they ended up finding the funding is just a classic tale of the unexpected. Welcome to The Art of Charm. I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. Today we're talking with journalist and author Julian Guthrie on her new book, How to Build a Spaceship. You should listen to this episode if you wanna learn about the types of habits and backgrounds highly successful folks have in the fields of space, engineering, aviation, and many others, why it's crucial to be relentless in your pursuit of your vision, and how to stay focused on the task at hand in the face of consistent rejection. We're glad to have you with us here today at AOC, so enjoy this one with Julian Guthrie. And by the way, if you're new to the show, we'd love to send you some top episodes and the Art of Charm Toolbox. That's where we discuss things like reading body language and nonverbal communication, the science of attraction, negotiation techniques, networking, mentorship, influence, persuasion, all that stuff that we teach here at the Art of Charm. If you're in the US, you can text CHARMED to 33444, that's C-H-A-R-M-E-D to 33444. Everywhere else, go to theartofcharm.com. Also at theartofcharm.com slash podcast, you can find the full show notes for this and all previous episodes of the show. All right, let's talk to Julian Guthrie. So my first question for you actually, Julian, is how do you get access to these people? Because your first book was with Larry Ellison from Oracle, and now you've got the Peter Diamandis. I wanna know what you're gonna work on next, of course, but how are you able to get in touch with these folks? Because I'll tell you, there's a lot of people on the internet that are trying to ask questions to these people and getting kind of stonewalled, what makes you so special? Well, I think it's all about persistence. I really do. And then, you know, coming at a person in kind of circling the wagons. And if you get no response or even a no from, say, Larry Ellison, who is notoriously difficult to get a hold of, he's the co-founder as you said, of Oracle Corporation, you know, I didn't hear a response from him for months, you know, when I was going after him to write my last book, The Billionaire and the Mechanic. And so then I went to the chief marketing officer of Oracle. I went to people who knew Larry Ellison and I, you know, just persisted and persisted. And then someone told me, you have to email him at this time of night. That's the only time he reads his own emails. So I'd wake up at 1am and I'd email him and So I learned little tricks in terms of when to reach him, how to reach him, you know, short brevity, you know, with the emails. So that was one case with Peter. I did a front page profile on him for the San Francisco Chronicle. It's for Peter Diamandis. And and we just really hit it off. And I love this story of the X Prize. And so that one wasn't difficult. But, you know, with people like also Richard Branson or Stephen Hawking, Richard wrote the foreword to my new book and Stephen Hawking wrote the afterward. You know, there it's a matter of introduction. Find somebody who knows that person or someone close to that person and don't take no for an answer and persist and be really forthright and show how heartfelt you are, sincere you are, and how much you love what you're doing and love the project and why it's important. So that's kind of how I went about, how I go about getting people. I, you know, I'm lucky because I do these projects that I am so passionate about and I believe in and they have a good message. And so it's not the hardest sell, but it is just a matter of getting their attention. Do you think that a lot of it is your background? Like you have a proven track record of journalism with the San Francisco Chronicle. It is, it's your reputation, right? You work on something assiduously, you're at it, you know, Every day for many years, I was at the San Francisco Chronicle for 20 years until last year. And you build up story by story, 
um, with you, you know, interview by interview with Peter Diamandis, business by business. You know, he's founded many, many companies. So you do these things step by step. You know, your goal is to get better at whatever it is you're doing. And so that has helped me develop, you know, a reputation as someone who is very devoted to getting the facts right, getting the story right. And also, though, who is trustworthy. You know, I'm not going to double cross anyone. People trust me with a lot of secrets. When someone tells me it's off the record, it's genuinely off the record. So it's just being forthright. And it is in your career, whatever your career is, it's doing things step by step and not skipping any of those steps. And that ultimately does pay off. Why do people tell journalists things that are supposed to be off the record? That is something I totally don't understand because their whole job is to make the record. So what part does telling somebody something off the record play? Well, there's sometimes these asides, you know, where Larry Ellison is talking to me about something private, maybe a family member. And, you know, the story of parenting is relevant but he doesn't want to reveal something about his son or daughter, let's say. So there's some context there. Peter Diamandis, you know, one of the reasons he really trusted me once he had done the profile for the San Francisco Chronicle, you know, during that reporting period, he had told me something about Planetary Resources, which is this asteroid mining company that he helped found. And he told me the name of the spacecraft and which asteroid they were going after. And while this sounds really far out, and it is really far out, he then called me back and he said, oh, I overstepped. I wasn't supposed to tell you the name of that particular asteroid, because I guess there's some competition to go after this asteroid. (laughs) I love this stuff. It's so out there. It's so wonderful. And so I said, no problem. I don't need that detail for the story. And that really also helped him to trust me, you know, with this bigger story, which really tells the story of his life and this greater cast of characters. But again, it's trust. So much of what we do, what you do, what I do, is about developing that trust and keeping a sense of priorities. You know, what's my objective here with this story? You know, I want to do a great story. I want to tell it factually. If someone has very valid reasons for a little detail that is not instrumental to my story, if that person doesn't want that in there, I'm going to respect that. Yeah, that seems a great way to build trust to get the other things that you do need for the story that make more sense. So it's it seems like with journalism as it is with any relationship, it's more about the long game. You could easily burn Peter Diamandis and write some cool like tech crunch front page, Peter Diamandis and planetary resources. resources. Yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> they're going after C-130X5 and asteroid. And then it's like, whoa, and then nobody wants to talk to you ever again but at least you got this little feather in your cap with you know the top of TechCrunch or what, I don't know, some space.com news website, but it, it would burn you. But a lot of people are willing to do that. However, to do the kind of deep work that you do, which is hang out with Larry Ellison and Peter Diamandis on spaceships and boats and whatever other vehicles these guys are building, you have to play the long game. Well, you do, and you know there was a lot that Peter Diamandis entrusted me with, with the reporting of this book, he actually exhumed 25 years worth of his personal journals, his diaries, in effect, that no one has ever seen. And he hasn't seen in, you know, in decades, because I said, I want to get past the Peter Diamandis that people think they know or know. And I want to learn about this, you know, wide eyed kid who was growing up with this seemingly crazy dream. And, you know, I want to know about the hardships. I want to know about the struggles because people see the successes. But 
you know, what went into this? We all know that, you know, achieving these milestones or breakthroughs or starting businesses, all of these things, you know, are really grueling. And so Peter sent me 25 years of his diaries, basically. And I went through, I spent an entire month going through those. And I put like a thousand post-its on these pages. And I was so moved by this very raw look at his life and how many times he failed before he succeeded. I mean, it was, even though I knew what the outcome was, I was rooting for this kid, you know, starting as a teenager. And, you know, there are just great messages in his story about perseverance and this guy who just got knocked down time and again, was told no time and again, was rejected time and again, and seemingly failed in his missions and yet kept at it. And so I was reading these journals and I was really pretty odd. First, he was a true space geek like I had never met before. He had to get off planet, you know, I mean, it's just like his in his marrow, his mission. And so I was fascinated by that because I'm not a space geek. And I didn't before this book hang out with a lot of them. And I was just like, wow, this is fascinating how it's just in his mind. He has to do this. But going back to your point, you know, there's a lot in those journals. It was very revealing as well. And so I had to be aware that, you know, I'm not writing a scandalous sort of book, but there's a lot in there that, you know, as it would, there would be in anyone's diary where you have to treat it you know, with respect. And so again, he entrusted me with that. And those diaries, those journals were super helpful in just my understanding who he is. And speaking of space geeks, this book, at first I thought, oh, this is going to be solely for space geeks. I'm not sure if this is going to be for me, but it turned out to be kind of a, in a way, an everyman story, as much as it might not seem like one involving spaceships and millions of dollars. But it involves having a, a huge dream that seems inconquerable and just impossible and going after it in a way that actually makes sense, not just some sort of follow your passion, it's all good, everything comes together in the end, but a real story with a lot of details and trials and tribulations and injuries and you know people getting hurt slash killed doing what they need to do to get to space and running out of money. I mean, it's a story of every business, only we're dealing with space and death. Yeah, that's neat to hear. That's how I see it as well. I mean, I see it as something that will appeal to parents, to kids of, you know, really from about the fifth grade up. It's really finding a home among STEM, science, technology, engineering and math programs, educators, and then into the entrepreneurial side of things. And it is, it's just about, you know, there's the aviation community, there's the space community, and then there's the engineering side of things. But I love the story just for the underlying themes of find your dream. If you're a parent, recognize that dream in your kids, even if it's not the one you see for them. Um, get them building stuff, you know, making stuff with their own hands. All the individuals in this book you know, who went on to make history, started out, found their passion early on, whether it was rocketry or building model planes, and they just kept at it and they never let go of that passion, you know, or for the startup, for the business person, you know, struggling to launch something, you know, here's a story. It's kind of this how-to manual 
on how to achieve a seemingly impossible dream. In this case, it was to get to space privately, to do in small teams what only three of the world's largest governments, China, U.S., and the then Soviet Union had done before, but to do this in really small and scrappy teams. And there are super cool messages in that. Follow your passion. Don't give up. Things that may seem like a cliche, but you see them play out in this book in real concrete ways that you can almost try to replicate in whatever it is that you are doing. And I certainly feel I'm a pretty tenacious person, but I feel I am inspired by the story, you know, and I feel more emboldened even because I have written this story and because I know what was achieved and I know how difficult it was to do what Peter and this whole cast of great band of renegades, you know, people kind of working off the grid, these outliers, you know, who had so much talent and they were incentivized in the right way to go after this $10 million prize. And it was even more than the prize, though. It was a shared dream. So there are a lot of great lessons and I'm super proud of the book. And yeah, I think it's got, you know, it has a great home with the space aficionados and dreamers, but way beyond that, you know, I tell people, you know, it has an appeal there, but I think it is for the every man, you know, the parents, the kids, anybody who's, you know, trying to do something great or maybe set aside a dream they had in youth and childhood and can pick it up again and be like, oh my gosh, look what was achieved and just take this moment, these themes of, that are very inspiring and run with it. One of the things that you mentioned was follow your passion sounds like a cliche, but you see it play out. But doesn't that lean a little bit towards survivorship bias? Because there's probably people that you researched for this that try to participate in the X Prize, didn't even come close, went bankrupt, not a happy ending. Some of the parties that you did follow, oh, this person works for this space company, this Romanian guy moves here, this other guy, da-da-da. But like, for example, John Carmack, CEO of Oculus, who was participating in this, he found bureaucracy to be so stifling, he just went, eh, to hell with this, and moved on to greener pastures for him. There have to be parties that you researched that you came across that where the story just wasn't interesting because it nosedived into the dirt figuratively or literally, and that was the end of it. Yeah, it's neat that you mentioned John Carmack. So he, of course, is a legend in the world of video games. And there are all these legends in my story in terms of in their own world, Burt Rattan, a legend in the world of aviation design. He has more planes in the Smithsonian today than just about any aircraft designer in history. You know, Peter has done amazing things. Um, Eric Lindbergh, you know, the grandson of Charles Lindbergh, his story within the story is great. John Carmack. So he was a legend in the world of video games, had done Quake and Doom and all sorts of cool stuff. Today, he's the CTO of Oculus Rift, but he thought he could apply what he knew about writing code for games and apply it to rocketry. And they worked super fast. They iterated. They had an all-volunteer team. And as you read in the book, you know, they were meeting Tuesdays and Saturdays. And they got an amazing amount of hardware actually built and tested in a crazy amount of time. I mean, very little time. And, you know, they had crashes and they had failures, but they were moving so fast in what they were doing. And again, it was an all-volunteer team working two days a week. So John, when I interviewed him for the book, when I interviewed him in Texas, you know, he's immersed in the virtual reality stuff right now and he's determined to get that 
into the mainstream and get all the bugs worked out. But he said, you know, he's going to come back to rocketry. He loves it. He's got the bug. He's not giving up on that. And he and Elon Musk have a funny back and forth sometimes where Elon's trying to recruit him to SpaceX. And I mean, John's just a genius, period. But he wants to get back into rocketry. The people that I really focused on in the book, there were something like 24 teams from a dozen countries that went after this $10 million prize put forth by Peter Diamandis for the first privately built and flown rocket that could go to the start of space. But I really focused on the teams that built hardware and that went past the proposal place where they were building stuff, they were testing, they were hot firing engines, they were digging ditches, they were actually doing the work. So I focused on those people and all of those people would never say that they regretted any of it because they're so passionate. They really took risks and they advanced in some way, whether incrementally or big steps, you know, their own careers as it related to space. Pablo de Leon, who was in Argentina and founded this team there, you know, his colleagues ridiculed him and they're like, you're never going to win this. And I think he got something like $50,000 in donations, which is nothing when you're building rockets. And, you know, he tested and he flew. And today he's a professor of aeronautics and he's designing these very cool spacesuits for SpaceX and for NASA and for Boeing, I think. And the Romanian guy you referenced, Dimitri Popescu, he is one of my favorite stories in the book. He was an engineering student uh, when he heard about the X Prize and he drops out of school, much to his parents' dismay. He's determined to build a rocket and he gets his wife on board reluctantly, but then they're building the, you know, this rocket with this volunteer team in his father-in-law's backyard in the outskirts of Bucharest. You know, and he's literally, he does not know what he's doing, this team. And they're putting their lives at risk and they've got engine explosions and they end up launching the largest private rocket ever flown from Romania. And the same thing happened with a guy, Steve Bennett, in the UK. You know, people ridiculed him. He dropped out of his, you know, he had a steady job at Colgate Toothpaste Factory in, in England and it was a steady paying job. And he left that and maxed out every credit card and was practically living in his car to build and fly this private rocket. And he ended up doing that. And again, flying the largest private rocket ever flown from the UK mainland. So there are all these stories of, no, they didn't win the prize, but wow, in their minds, they won the prize. And they were all rooting for each other, you know, and it, Bert Rattan steps into the scene and in the Mojave Desert, so cool. Badlands of the Mojave, you know, 30 people working on the secret spaceship program there. And, you know, he gets the funding besides having the genius in aviation, which he thinks, can this apply to space? Can I take what I've learned in aviation and just, you know, move it out to space? And that was obviously a huge risk, a huge question, a lot of doubts around it. But he had the secret backing by Microsoft co-founder Paul Allen. You know, there are all these people who were gunning for this $10 million prize, but they just had this shared dream. They had this shared dream. They had this disappointment in NASA or in governmental space programs, whether in the UK or in Romania or in Argentina or in the United States. And they just wanted to advance that cause. The guy from the UK, for example, where is he now, though? Is he still living in his car? 
No, so he's not. You know, he risked literally everything. You know, his wife was going to divorce him. You know, he's trying to pay for the kids. He's maxed out everything. And you're like, this is crazy. And, you know, he's living off the credit cards and just to build this rocket. And he does so. And it's a big success. You know, he still struggles. He ends up getting financing through a um, multimillionaire over in the UK. And so he's building rockets today. And he has this very large and respected educational outreach program now where he brings rocketry to schools all across England. And he's still building rockets. And he is still with the goal of building a manned private spaceship. He's very hard at work. I think his company is called Starship Enterprises in the UK. Steve Bennett, another great story, you know, just sacrifices and passion and risking a ton and seeing great successes along the way. But, you know, having this goal, which is really, really hard, but being unrelenting. I mean, really cool stuff. I mean, to me, the best of the human spirit. What I love about this story is it combines human bravery and uh, scrappiness and innovation with technological breakthroughs. I don't know. I gravitate toward those combinations in stories and science, a lot of tech, but then there's the human drama, which pulls the thread that runs through and is the strongest to me and is the most important to me as a storyteller. Now, Dimitri Popescu, who was in Romania, it seems like he talks to this cosmonaut from Romania, kind of a national hero, and the guy says, yeah, yeah, you're doing great things, and then kind of turns around and says, ah, these guys are not doing anything special, they're never getting to space, nobody pay any attention to them. What do you think's happening there? I mean, sure, there's probably some ego and some jealousy, but what do you think actually happened there? Because that seemed like a really weird, underhanded chop at the knees. Yeah, you're absolutely right. That's a good observation. And there were experiences like this in Argentina as well, and to a certain degree in the UK, where the government was supposed to be doing these things, you know, according to either, you know, what the government was being paid for, the governmental space program, such as in Romania, you know, they were supposed to be developing manned rocketry and manned rockets, you know, worthy of flying men, women, up to the start of space and beyond, and they were not doing that. So here comes this 20-something kid who hasn't even finished engineering school, is very audacious, and is building rockets. And word starts getting out. You know, it starts in this, you know, backyard in Bucharest. And, you know, the rocket is actually starting to be built. And the Romanian cosmonaut, Dimitru Pernario, yeah, he was very friendly to Dimitru Popescu, young engineering student at first. And then, you know, once Dimitru starts to actually build things, then the Romanian space agency is taking notice of this. And I think, you know, behind the scenes, somebody was needling them like, hey, you know, you're getting all this money for doing this. It got very hostile between, you know, Dimitru and his team of volunteers, you know, students and the Romanian Space Agency and the Romanian Space Agency, the head of it, Prunario, he, you know, was sending emails actually saying this was after 9-11 in the United States. They could be likened to what they're doing could be considered something that could be aiding terrorists because they were building these rockets. Dimitru, the engineering student and his volunteer team, they were actually for some time very nervous of 
the Romanian government cracking down on what they were doing or, you know, they were living in fear for a period. It got very hostile. And, you know, Dimitru Popescu today is in New Mexico and he has an aerospace company called Arca and they are doing super cool things. So that's an amazing story unto itself. When I read this, I was like, that cosmonaut dude is spreading a bunch of government cash to his crony friends and they're not doing anything because they go, well, space is hard and expensive. And everyone just goes, yeah, probably. And it's since it's not a major national goal, there's not a whole lot of spotlight on it. And then when these students start doing it, they go, what happened to all your money? And they're probably really worried that someone's gonna look into it and find that he bought a house in Greece with it. (laughs) I don't have any evidence for that, but I have lived in Eastern Bloc places where that's just kind of what people do when they work for the government is they figure out a way to skim off some cream. Well, probably. I think that's what Dimitru, the student, was dealing with. And, you know, you think about the courage he had to continue. You know, when you have not only the challenge, just the engineering challenge of building a rocket, you know, privately and trying to, at some point, his goal was to send someone up in it. You know, you've got that challenge, period. And then you have not just a lack of support, that's one thing, that's passive, but you have open hostility and you're dealing with that and you're a student and, you know, your parents, your family members, your friends, everybody thinks you're nuts. And, you know, he persisted, you know, going back to this whole perseverance thing, you know, he was passionate about it and it was his dream and he was unrelenting when he had all of these people against him. You know, I mean, Peter Diamandis had all of these people against him, too. So there's a theme here, I guess. (laughs) Over the last 17 years, we have launched our fair share of online courses, coaching programs, and finding the right platform has always been a challenge. They say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. But if you're an entrepreneur, you know the hard work that comes with it. That's why you need Kajabi. Kajabi makes it easy to run your entire online business from one platform so you can focus on what you love, creating. Kajabi is the ultimate all-in-one platform that helps creators and entrepreneurs build successful online businesses by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. No matter your niche, Kajabi makes it easy to turn your skills, passions, and experiences into enriching online courses, exclusive membership sites, subscription podcasts, thriving communities, personalized coaching, and more. The best part? Kajabi doesn't cut into your revenue because everything is owned and controlled by you. So keep 100% of what you earn. And with Kajabi, you also get robust analytics, easy payment options, email marketing tools, and customizable website templates all built in. You don't even need a huge audience to make sustainable income. There are thousands of creators on Kajabi making six and seven figures with less than 50,000 followers. Right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com slash charm. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash charm. Go to kajabi.com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. Johnny, we know if you listen to the show, you are driven. In fact, we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data. And a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. 
Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to recent Indeed survey. We have hired a lot of team members over the last 17 years. Going through endless resumes, well, that's a time sink. But you know what else is a time sink? Interviewing endless people, because they're all going to give you the best face forward. That's why we love Indeed, leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash charm. Just go to Indeed.com slash charm right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash charm. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It seems strange to me that Peter finished medical school. That just seems bizarre. Was it just because of his family wanting him to be a doctor? It seemed like that's what it was said in the book, but I almost can't believe it. It's like, why would you go through the, all of that just to be like, finish medical school, all right, now on to rocket. It's almost contra to what a lot of these big players say, which is focus only on what you're doing, don't get distractions. I mean, talk about a distraction, you're going to medical school for God's sake. It was, and I read, it was interesting reading his private journals because he had, you know, a half dozen of them were from the medical school days. And I was reading this. You know, there were some places where he was totally fascinated, you know, like when he was doing cranial dissections and he was intrigued by, you know, the brain and he was, you know, and you can see how that would be absolutely fascinating where you're getting an inside look literally at, you know, the human body and the brain and the inner working. So he was interested in that. But most of it was, oh, my God, how am I in the journals was I just have to get through with this to get back to my love of space. I mean, my heart you know, and mind are in space. And I am here in medical school. And he was at Harvard Medical School. He had gotten in, he'd gone to MIT earlier. And, you know, he was on this dual track, you know, his parents, uh, Greek immigrants, his father, you know, was his own success story of coming to America and finding his way and becoming a respected physician. And in the Greek tradition, they wanted you know, the eldest son, Peter, to follow in his father's footsteps. And he was, you know, from early childhood, they would say, there's the next Dr. Diamandis. And so he was on that track and he was a good boy. You know, he wanted to please his parents, but his heart and love was always space. And he went to Harvard, yes, to please his parents, to, you know, check. But he also had another kind of ulterior motive there, which was very space geeky. I mean, it's so incredible that you would go to Harvard, you would go through medical school there trying to please his parents, but he also had this idea that maybe what he learned there would help him live long enough, would, you know, teach him something about longevity so he could live long enough just so he could get to space. And, you know, it's this thinking that shows, you know, his obsession that, yes, he's doing it largely for his parents, but, oh, well, this could be helpful. And the third part of it was there was still a hope in his mind that he might become an astronaut for NASA. And if you weren't a fighter pilot, a test pilot, 
you know, the best way to get into the astronaut corps was to have a medical degree. He had these different agendas with medical school. But it does show, you know, an interesting side to him for sure. And to go to all that work, but to never practice medicine. He was never intending to practice medicine. It's kind of like, well, I want to go to space, but that might take a while. Let me cure aging by going to medical school first so that then I can buy myself enough time to then go to space. It's kind of like Elon Musk in a way where it's like, all right, so we need to be around on Earth long enough so that we can get to space and colonize Mars. And in order to do that, we gotta slow down global warming. What's the biggest polluter? Okay, cars. All right, let's invent an electric car that pollutes less, and then that'll help fund everything. It's just like, what? And the solar city, it's crazy how big these people think. Yeah, that's a brilliant observation on your part, a parallel. It's a whole different way. It is a really interesting way of thinking of looking at the world and looking at your place in it and how you get there. You know, it's a seemingly indirect path, but one thing just led to the other. And Elon, I interviewed him for the book, and there are a number of these fly-on-the-wall scenes where, you know, Peter is meeting in this quest to fund this prize. So it's very funny. He, as you read, he announces the prize, $10 million prize in May 1996, and he's got 20 astronauts with him, and he's got the head of the Federal Aviation Administration. He's got Burt Rattan and, you know, the head of NASA. He doesn't have the $10 million. Oops. But he believes he's going to get it, you know, and he goes off on this quest to fundraise and, you know, to make it happen however he could. But, you know, he didn't have the money when he started, but he had the vision, you know, just knocking on every single door imaginable. And one of those doors was Elon Musk. And he met with him in around 2001 when Elon had just cashed out or was cashing out of PayPal, which he'd co-founded. And so you see this super cool scene where Peter is meeting with Elon and a fellow, an entrepreneur named Adeo Resi, really interesting guy. And Elon is just starting to think about getting into space. And Peter has never thought of anything else. And so it's almost like Peter, you know, was the elder statesman at that point. You know, he's only... 10 years older. I guess that's significant enough. But, you know, and they're sitting down and they're talking about this and Peter is trying to get funding for the X Prize, and Elon is thinking just about Mars. He's like, we've been to the moon, check, been there, done that. We got to go to Mars. So, you know, it's a very cool scene, you know, where you get a first glimpse of Elon. There's another scene in the book where Peter's meeting with Jeff Bezos to ask for funding. Jeff, of course, being the co-founder of Amazon and Peter's asking Jeff to fund the X Prize, and Jeff is like, no, but and this was around 2000 as well. I'm planning on everything I make through Amazon, I'm going to put into space. And today, that's proven very much true. And, you know, he's got Blue Origin, and it's doing phenomenal things. And Elon with SpaceX is doing phenomenal things in space. You see another scene where Peter Diamandis is meeting with Richard Branson, the founder of Virgin. And Peter's like, I know he's going to fund it. I know he's going to fund it. You know, he's the rebel billionaire. You know, we're all about being rebels. And he loves space, allegedly. And Richard Branson doesn't fund it. But you, again, get to kind of, again, be this fly on the wall where you're meeting with these really fascinating people. And it's just the beginning of this talk. It's this turning point, this inflection point where space is beginning to go from governmental control to private industry. There's a really neat turning point in this story, in history, where you see that happen. 
he got rejected, what, 150 times asking for $10 million, which is a lot, but not so much that you'd think, oh, this is impossible, right? And yet 150 no's. Yeah, that's by any measure, that's a lot of rejection. You know, after maybe 20, 30 times, you'd be like, geez, I mean, you know, whether it's if I'm submitting a book proposal and I get rejected 20 times, I'd be like, oh, this is probably not going to work. I mean, not after doing this story now, but or you, you know, have a business venture that you're trying to get funded or, you know, you're a high school student trying to launch something, whatever it is, you know, and you're told no five times. You're like, this is not looking good. Ten times. This is really not looking good. Peter, over 150 times, and he's getting these meetings with, you know, CEOs of big corporations repeatedly, they're all asking him the same questions. They're asking, why isn't NASA doing this? And what if someone gets killed? You know, I don't want my company logo, Ford or Rolex or FedEx or whatever it is on the side of a rocket that may explode. I mean, how good is you know that going to look? So Right. Like the logo plunged through like uh, someone's roof and you just see the <laughs> flames and on the flames, it's like sponsored by Rolex, right? Exactly. General Motors. He was doing this before all these thousands and thousands of dot-com billionaires. Jason says, yeah, people tip $10 million nowadays, right? You could have asked a bunch of other people that weren't rich back then because they were in elementary school, right? Or middle school or something, high school. Those guys now, if you needed $10 million for an XPRIZE now, and this is what he is doing at the XPRIZE, he's going, all right, how many XPRIZES do you want to fund? Oh, okay, here's a few million from Zuckerberg, you know, whoever, because people are funding this, probably it's the friggin' tax write-off at this point for half these guys, right? Exactly, but it, you know, at that time, there was also not the crowdfunding sources that we have today, you know, with Kickstarter, with Indiegogo, with GoFundMe, with a range of these. And so he was doing this incentive prize, you know, largely without the internet and trying to spread the word and trying to galvanize people. And he had galvanized, you know, was successful through the media. It was a huge media story, you know, the X Prize, the teams that were going after it. But, you know, he was meeting one-on-one -on -one with these CEOs and told, you know, no time and again. And, you know, he just couldn't get there. You know, it was just like, God, he'd get enough money to keep, you know, this small team. And they were all doing other things. No one was getting rich of this. People were barely getting paid. And, you know, sometimes it would be down to just Peter and, you know, another key guy, Greg Marionek, where they'd be the only, you know, guys left standing who were keeping this dream going, this dream of the X Prize. So, you know, the way they ended up finding the funding is just a classic tale of the unexpected. You know, I think it's, uh, it's, it's great, you know, and it is a story of like, don't give up and keep knocking on those doors and you may not get your funding from expected avenues. So go to these kind of Think creatively, think outside the box. You know, the story is all about that. You know, try solutions that are unexpected and try to outsource problems that you have to the outliers. There is great power in crowdsourcing. And this was a model of that before, you know, the term was as ubiquitous as it is today. 
The backbone for me, for Peter, was illustrated when, aside from all of his perseverance, but even in medical school, I can't remember, he got sick or something, or he was too busy starting a space university or competing and all these different things, that he missed some days dissecting a pig, and he was like, I'm gonna fail, so they steal the pig so that he can practice, and that was kind of a cardinal offense, according to the professor, knowing that most of the time pig fetuses get you know chopped up and served to people as a prank or something like that. And he's doing it to practice. And that professor, he cops to it and he says, look, I took it. I know I might get expelled from school, but I did it. And I don't know if a lot of people would do that. Do you think he would have done that if he wasn't gonna get turned in by his friend or do you think he did it because he's an upstanding guy? That's so funny. I love that fetal pig story, actually. I think we all have a fetal pig story in our own lives. Yeah, but I got away with it. <laughs> Never got caught. Yeah, gosh, it's where you cut corners. And in this case, it was Peter who, yeah, he did get sick and he had everything on the line. This was earlier in the story. This was when he was still at Hamilton before he transfers to MIT. And he's dreaming of going to MIT and leaving Hamilton. It wasn't the place for him. And he gets sick and he, so much of his biology class depends on this final fetal pig dissection examination. So he puts the fetal pig into this bag and absconds with it and he's found out and he goes to the woods and buries it. I mean, it's a hysterical story. And, you know, he's living in fear and you just, we've all had something like, oh God, is it over? You know, is my future over? Have I done something really, really dumb here? I didn't have bad intentions, but, you know, he actually, Peter called his dad and said, dad, he was just ashen and shaken. He just said, this is what I've done and I'm just going to go and plead for mercy. And his dad said, well, he gave him some strategy that was very, very helpful. And Peter did go and he turned himself in and I think it's a matter of Peter, you know, had very good guidance. He had a good, strong backbone. You know, he's an ethical guy. But I think it was, this was the best avenue to take. You know, I have to fess up. And, and he did. And the professor, you know, showed him mercy. And I interviewed that professor about that moment. And he's like, I'm so glad he didn't remember, but he was so glad that he did that to give Peter that chance because they had such a strict honor code that Peter literally could have been expelled. And, you know, from that, going back to something I said earlier, and that is you don't miss any steps. You don't skip any steps along the way. And Peter, that was like, okay, I am not skipping a step along the way from here on out. You know, I'm going to be as assiduous and as conscientious as I can be. So it was a great lesson for him. What about the books that these guys are reading, it seems like you know all these people really well, you're reading their journals, you're talking with some of these top guys like Larry Ellison, Diamandis, Burutan. What are these guys reading? Where do these guys have their major influences? Did you see any commonalities between the things that they're taking in? Hmm, that's a really interesting point. They are driven more internally rather than by external influences. That may be the difference there. Whereas much of the world is guided by, you know, the influences of maybe what you read or what you uh, exposed to, there was something, you know, Larry Ellison with Burt Rattan, certainly with Peter Diamandis, with Richard Branson, with this woman in the story, Anusha Ansari, who's a great character, Eric Lindbergh, where they 
were driven by, it seems like something that was just in their DNA, in their marrow. You know, in Peter's case, it was to get to space. In Bert's case, it was to build planes. In Richard Branson's case, it was to shake up, you know, business industry and to do things that are profitable, but that are also really, really fun. For Larry Ellison, he's a guy who just wanted to work for himself. So he needed to come up with a company where he could do that, which is pretty funny. So I think there's that. Although Peter, an interesting story. So he came up with the idea for the X Prize by reading a book, The Spirit of St. Louis by Charles Lindbergh. And he's reading this book and he's like, wow, I always thought Lindbergh flew as a stunt. But wow, now I'm reading that Lindbergh flew to win a $25,000 prize that had been set forward by a fellow named Raymond Ortega in the 1920s. And Charles Lindbergh, you know, was the first man to fly nonstop from New York to Paris, connecting the cities, became the world's most famous man at the time. Peter's reading this is like, wow, look at how Lindbergh's flight, prompted by this Ortega prize, really jump-started commercial aviation. What if I could do the same for private space flight? What if I could launch an incentive competition to really jumpstart this industry? So there is some of that inspiration taken from books, obviously mentors and the like. But with these individuals, there's this just strong, almost inexplicable inner drive. Tell us about Burt Rutan. He's, he's not a minor character, but he's certainly not the main character we see in this book. But the guy's clearly brilliant. You mentioned him earlier. He has more aircraft designs in the Smithsonian than just about anyone. That sounds like a very specific form of genius. It is. Burt Rattan is a guy who, you know, he's been the same as I see it from childhood to his 70s, where he is today. When he was, you know, eight, seven, eight, nine years old, he was raised Seventh-day Adventist and they couldn't do sports on weekends. They couldn't do a lot of things. So what he could do was build model planes. And his father was a plane geek and his older brother, Dick Rattan, loved planes. His sister, you know, would always play the stewardess when you could use that term. That's what she aspired to be. So they were just a plane centric, plane focused family. But Bert, really interesting story about him. So he would never want his mom to buy him the kits for model planes because he never wanted to build something that had already been built. He never wanted to follow someone else's instructions. You know, in school, it would not be looked favor that quality would not be looked upon favorably because he wanted to do something original all the time. So his brother would build these kits, these model planes. Dick Rattan would build them and fly them and crash them. And then Bert would pick up the balsa wood pieces and he would build something of his own design. And they were always these wild, contrarian looking planes. And they looked highly improbable or dangerous. But they were just these model planes. And, you know, step by step, again, he began to build bigger model planes, remote control planes. He went on by the age of 16 to win the Plane Modelers Association top awards where there are thousands of these people who gather of all ages and fly these home-built model planes. So that was his passion. And that was something, again, that his parents did nurture. And his mom took him all across the state. He grew up in Central California and took him to all these model aviation shows. And they'd have to have trailer and put all these planes in the back and drive. So it was this passion that, you know, his mother really nurtured. And again, this contrarian approach, he became very well known 
in the 70s through the 80s for these home-built kits. He came up with these kits to build your own airplane basically in your garage. I mean, that is reminiscent of, you know, the computer industry, a lot of great things which have started in garages. So he thought, why can't we build our own planes in our backyards, in our garages? So he made these kits and started selling these kits and sold thousands and thousands of them for these planes you could build on your own and fly. That sounds really, really dangerous. I know it does. But for the aviation crowd, it was really embraced and the Federal Aviation Administration has to certify them. So he made a great name for himself doing that and then founded Scale Composites in the Mojave Desert and built all sorts of cool planes. And then in 1986, he built this, again, very improbable looking plane. This is how Bert thinks. And this is also why his genius, while specific, is so applicable to all different people, walks of life, ages, industries. His story is super inspiring. So in 1986, he builds this crazy looking spindly winged plane called the Voyager. And the Voyager, flown by his brother Dick Rattan, who had been to Vietnam and decorated Purple Heart test pilot, military pilot, flew this Voyager. First nonstop, non-refueled flight around the world. Huge news. This was 1986. This was Burt's plane. And nobody thought, you know, it could be done. It was on the cover of every magazine that year. You know, one of the biggest news stories of that year and a true milestone. So, you know, Bert is the guy who, again, step by step did it, achieved a milestone with the Voyager. He's dreaming of space. He'd always loved space, loved the story of rocket scientist Werner von Braun and others. You know, so he starts to think, why can't I do a high altitude research plane? Maybe it will drop launch a rocket. And he hears of Diamandis's prize. He'd already met Paul Allen. His genius leads him to come up with, you know, the solution to one of the most vexing problems of modern spaceflight or spaceflight period, manned spaceflight, and that is how to return man and machine safely back through the atmosphere. And so he came up with this design that was called the feather, where the wings of the plane actually crazily would just bend in half upon descent to slow the descent and to reorient the craft as it's coming back into the atmosphere. And aerodynamicists told him it was never going to work. It was going to result in a fatal spin and he was going to lose his test pilot. But, you know, he tested it and his gut instinct and all of his years of building planes, designing planes, believing in what he had done, you know, paid off. Then these events start to unfold in the Mojave Desert. And Tens of thousands of people flock to the Mojave Desert to see the world's first private manned space flights and a team of 30 people building this private spaceship in the desert and reigniting this dream that people had, you know, who watched NASA, the magic of NASA in the 60s. And here it was, this team of 30 people. And, you know, it's one of those things that brings tears to people's eyes to talk about it, not to sound hokey, but it was like, so cool on so many levels of private versus government, small teams versus corporations or government and off the grid outlier types doing this cool maverick stuff and test pilots straight out of the right stuff, you know, white knuckling it to the start of space. A 63 year old test pilot, you know, is the first to fly this rocket, the spaceship one to the start of space. So 
Peter Diamand is, you know, watching, biting his nails. But this dream, you know, from which began when he watched the Apollo 11 landing in 1969, this dream coming to reality. So Bert is one of my favorite characters. And by character, I mean real life people. He's just a larger than life figure in every sense of the word and and a great story. And I love it that his story, while well known in aviation circles, you walk into any aviation gathering with him and he's a rock star. But I mean, his story is so interesting, I think, for a mainstream audience. So I hope that people who didn't know about him before really grab on to what he's done. It has so many cool, amazing lessons for non-aviation types. Yeah, it's it's just kind of a, an interesting character in the story itself. And Jason knows a little bit about him as well. And so it just seems like he's underrated, but of course, in his circles, he's the man, of course, well-deserved accolades for the things that he's done. I mean, the idea that there's a plane that would reorient itself, even if everything broke, the way that it's designed, it pushes itself into the right position. When I heard that, I thought, okay, simple concept, probably really tough to design. Wait a minute, why aren't all planes built like that? How is that not every single plane, right? It's just, and it's, it seems like the level of innovation is incredible. It is. It really is a great story. How to Make a Spaceship is a great story about innovation and these breakthroughs. And it does seem simple, right? But sometimes, you know, as we know, you know, where when it appears simple, it's like a lot of hard work. It's taken so much hard work to get there. You know, Steph Curry of the Warriors, he, you know, that three pointer looks so simple, but how many times has he practiced it? You know, all of these, you know, whether it's in sports or whether it's in business or whether it's in writing or whether it's in podcasting or, you know, whatever the field, you know, it takes a lot to get to that seemingly simple design. And in this case, it was something, again, going back to the power of finding your passion in childhood, it goes back to. Bert had built these model planes, as I talked about in childhood, and one model plane, it used what's called a dethermalizer, and it would basically, they would have cotton ball and saltpeter, and it would light, and it would burn through in flight, and it would kick up the tail of this model plane. Just It would be like a rubber band snapping, and the tail flips up, and it would create mid-flight this drag, which you can picture when the tail goes up, creating the drag. And so he said he didn't realize that he was drawing on that as a source of inspiration until after the fact. But it's a really interesting thing that this plane, this model that he flew in childhood, that it could play out in some way, some significant way, because the wings here again bend it up to create the drag. And almost in half, it looks like the plane was just broken in half. It's a really nutty design. But in many ways, very beautiful, but that that could decades later be like your aha moment without even you consciously saying aha, you know, where it's again, going back to don't skip a step. Every, you know, iteration along the way is super key. One of the things you'd recommend it is that people make and build things with their own hands and support other people doing the same. There's some power in making something from scratch, I suppose. Rockets, model planes, whatever. Uh, even the video games that you allude to as well. What else do you recommend people do? You've studied all these amazing people. What else do they have in common that started early that we can look to for either ourselves or our own children? 
Well, like Peter, you know, we talked about Bird and his model planes, but Peter Diamandis was an original rocket boy. I mean, this was when you could order explosives online and you could stash them in your closet and kids don't try this at home, but, or do, you know, I mean, they learned really, really great lessons. He and his rocket boyfriends where they were using flying Estes rockets, but they were also doing these homebrew concoctions, you know, preferably do this with an adult supervisor, but you know, they were learning, they were learning about chemistry and they were learning about aerodynamics and they were learning about propulsion and they were passionate about it. And they'd ride their bikes out to a field and launch these rockets. And I think some of that is, you know, I hope it's not lost today because it is such a powerful path. And, you know, when you see kids doing this, building anything, even gaming, you know, teach them code, teach them what goes on behind the games, you know, and that is coding. Get a lot of girls, you know, push girls into the science and the technology and the engineering and math. There's a great character in the book, individual woman, Anusha Ansari, whose love of science led her to go on to become the world's first private female astronaut. She spent 10 days at the International Space Station. So I think it's also, um, you know, it's following that, it's seeing that passion, and it is this sense of purpose, finding your own purpose and not letting go of that and studying different models. You know, Peter took, again, inspiration from the golden age of aviation for a thoroughly modern space flight. So I think there's listening to yourself and then there's looking at what's out there. And then there's just this refusal to let other people tell you that your dream is unattainable. You know, if you believe it, you can do it. Julian, thank you so much. This has been a really fun episode. I really appreciate your time. Interesting show. I mean, there's a lot here. She's really spent a lot of time with a lot of high caliber people and uh, dug in. I mean, reading their personal journals, I'm guessing that she's the only person who's done that besides them and maybe not even them. So there's a lot of trust and a lot of rapport built. I really can appreciate the amount of work that she must put into these particular books and these particular stories and really doing her homework on everybody. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to thank Julian on Twitter. We'll have that linked in the show notes as well as the book, How to Build a Spaceship and some other resources mentioned here on the show and some other links and how-tos and bios, et cetera. Remember, you can tap our album art in most mobile podcast players to see the show notes for this episode. We'll link to the show notes directly on your phone. I also post tons of stuff on Twitter. A lot of it never makes it to the show. Articles, insights, there's a lot of other ways to engage with me and produce or Jason there. I'm at The Art of Charm on Twitter. Bootcamps are live program details. That's at bootcamp.theartofcharm.com. Now remember, we're sold out a few months in advance, so if you're thinking about it, you're curious about what we do here in our live programs, just get in touch with us ASAP, get some info from us so you can plan ahead. I also want to encourage you to join our AOC challenge at theartofcharm.com slash challenge, or if you're here in the States, you can text CHARMED to 33444. That's C-H-A-R-M-E-D to 33444. The challenge is about improving your network skills, your connection skills, and inspiring those around you to develop a personal and professional relationship with you. And we'll also email you our fundamentals toolbox that I mentioned earlier on the show. I'm also doing regular videos with drills and exercises to help you move forward. It'll make you a better networker, a better connector, and a better thinker. That's theartofcharm.com slash challenge or text charmed in the US to 33444. For the full show notes for this and all previous episodes, head on over to theartofcharm.com slash podcast. 
This episode of The Art of Charm was produced by Jason DeFilippo. Jason Sanderson is our audio engineer and editor. Show notes on the website, those are by Robert Fogarty. And I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. Go ahead, tell your friends, because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else, either in person or shared on the web. So stay charming and leave everything and everyone better than you found them. Thanks for listening to The Art of Charm. Get more confidence, relationship skills, life hacks, and more at theartofcharmpodcast.com.